You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another show. Oh, it's so good. It's so good to see everyone again. Yay! Uh, I'm excited for this week to hear what sort of... What sort of weird, strange things you brought for me, but also for all of our great listeners. I'm so and, excited. Uh, I have a question. I have a question for you. Have either of you ever seen uh, these lists online uh, where they list out all the sort of traditional words for groups of animals? Oh, sure. Venery. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, like a parliament of owls oh, yeah. and a murder of crows. Absolutely. A crash of a rhinoceroses. A business of ferrets. A shrewd. Yeah, a shrewdness of apes. A pandemonium um, I was of curious pandas. about these lists. Yeah, a like flamboyance they, of flamingos. They've always there. So you know, you you know. Rachel knows well. a few. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> she does. I was curious about. Although I think technically the pandemonium is not about pandas. Oh, it's a pandemonium of something else. Oh, that, that's which fair. Threw me off because you mm-hmm. think it'd be about pandas, but very odd. Um, I was curious about these lists as, as they've always kind of bugged me. Like, where do these lists come from? Who where do these names up? come from? Mm-hmm. Right. There's never, almost never a source listed when these are sh- posted on social media. It's sort right. of a, like a did you know kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Like, who calls a group of flamingos a flamboyant? Right. No one. Right. No and one. I think these lists sort of imply that these are just the accepted correct names for these groups. And people just don't know. Traditional. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, they've been called this for centuries. Is the implication. Right. Although no, in some cases, like literally no one has ever called that them ever. Right. So what I take issue with is that these are even legit or, you know, or were they just invented solely as a joke or a meme to pass around? I mean, no one ever really says like I saw an, an embarrassment of pandas at the zoo. That's, that's the <laughs> one for actual for giant pandas is an embarrassment. Um, so people would be utterly confused if you're like, oh, I saw this embarrassment of pandas. They're like, oh, my God, what happened to them? Right? What did you like, do no to the pandas? Like so also pandas are solitary animals, right? That's I mean, why it's an embarrassment if they're all together. <laughs> there you go. It's an embarrassment when they, they keep falling out of trees. and stuff. <laughs> so I did a little digging and it turns out some of these are indeed very old going back mostly to French and English hunting manuals from the 1400s. Oh. Uh, while some of them appear on websites more recently with absolutely no attribution whatsoever and may just be jokes or even typos. Uh, for example, uh, the Book of St. Albans in 1486 lists a group of ferrets as a busyness, mm. while multiple modern websites, including the San Diego Zoo, claim they're called a business right as in she runs a business correcting mm. typos uh, right. so i think they just misspelled busyness yeah. hmm. and we're like that can't be right it must be b-u-s-i-n-e-s-s and it's no it's mm-hmm. it's that's not what it is a it's busyness. busyness not business Fairs but like you know busy. that's how these yeah and these 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 things happen some i think that one's just a typo that's been passed around so anyhow uh, the lists are fun but take them with a grain of salt 
There's one particular word on those lists that I want to focus in on, though, and that's the collective noun heard. Oh, yeah. That gets yeah. used all of the time. It gets used a lot, and we can trace it, it back. Any, I feel like any yeah. sort of um, ruminant group of hoofed animals is a herd. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, this the deal is this word goes back a really long ways. I mean, it goes past, it's probably older than Old English, actually. It probably goes into like a pro- proto-Germanic. Uh, this word is very old, we know, and it literally just means a group of animals. And Amazing. they're usually, you're kind of hinting, hinting at this, but usually domestic animals mm. and almost always animals with hooves. So, uh, which, you know, ruminants would fall into that. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing, though. Herds don't have to be domesticated animals, though. There can right. be herds of deer or antelope. Sure. Really, any animal that sticks together. And, and we, mean a herd we of really geese. love collective nouns. Well, flock Yeah, exactly. See, we really flock. love collective nouns in English. I was, I was just going to get to that. We, we don't use like the full list from the past, but many of the collective nouns other than herd have stuck around. So I, I did a little list here. I think we all know flock, school, shoal, pack, pod, mm-hmm. colony, band, congregation, army, colony, swarm, cluster, troop, tribe, drove, cast, band, caravan, coalition, bunch, litter, team, brace, skein, convocation, parade, cast, covey, kettle, horde, Clan, party, pride, passel, bevy. Uh, Even a weird one that birders use a lot, a murmuration of starlings. Uh, We (laughs) we still use a lot of these. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily. You might might not have known every one I said. Yeah. And you might not necessarily, you're getting at Victoria, we don't necessarily use them for animals. Right. Is that what you're going to say? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so like some of these are used just for groups of humans too. How we break into like, mm-hmm. um, like a you know, coalitions and caravans congregation, yeah. and congregations and convocation and parade. So I think some of these may have started out as animal terms that we've now um, we still have in our language. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily use them for animals anymore. So we do just love collective nouns and use them all the time. But in ecology, uh, scientists have really taken a shine to the word herd. A lot of the collective nouns have been thrown out just for the sake of simplicity. And when ecologists talk about herds of animals, it isn't just domesticated animals and it isn't just hooved animals. It's a group. Uh, a herd can be an assemblage of, uh, hey, assemblage, there's another collective uh, noun, but <laughs> it can be an assemblage of any kind of animal of any kind uh, as long as they are in communication with each other and stick together. That's sort of the hmm. general okay. idea of a herd so, in ecology. Whether it's birds or fish or mammals yeah you could call yeah. them all a herd yeah okay. i i will say i don't like the idea of a group of fish being called a herd it's weird you know? huh it feels yeah but, you know, I mean, sit right and mm. i guess uh you know some of the things like a shoal or a school or a that pod. term is so strong in fisheries that i think people would probably just might default to that one but <laughs> yeah herd Whoops. can kind of be from what i understand can be used for kind of whatever um and just, with that in mind i want to tell you about a new group of animals that have been shown to exhibit herding behavior that we didn't know about before. Oh, okay. Ooh. You tell? Yeah. So it is something that we had never seen or known about previously until this, uh, I don't know, re- not super new, but relatively new research was done. And that could be because it's hard to see these animals. These animals live entirely underground. Hmm. And we don't give them a lot of credit on talking about earthworms well you know that's funny kirk because when you were saying that ecologists use the term herd for any kind of animal i was thinking oh like worms do they really stick together i don't know 
well wow that's cool that's the reason <laughs> that came into your brain um kind of lead rolled. researcher uh laura zerbies uh from belgium had an interesting observation and as i said on the as we said on the show before and certainly i've said this while teaching science begins with observation that's not just a thing we say that is the truth mm-hmm. she and her colleagues were trying to study how earthworms interact with soil microbes mm. but they noticed that whenever they would dig around in the soil they were studying they often found the worms near each other and it oh, sort of yeah. sparked this idea for an, another research project sorry but how many yeah. times are you in the woods with kids digging up in the soil Kids find a worm, and then yep. all of a sudden, a bunch of them are finding worms. If you find one, you find a lot. Yeah. And I had kind of assumed that because that was because maybe you're in, like, you're looking under a log, and it was a damp spot, and the worms were attracted to that dampness, hmm. and it would have nothing to do with, like, herding behavior. It's just they're all going after the same resource or same soil conditions. That, that would have always been my assumption. Mm-hmm. But they wanted to test that out, right? So you got a hypothesis, you got to test it out. So what she and her colleagues did is they built a box with two arms and they filled the whole thing with dirt and they placed worms into the central chamber. And then they waited 24 hours and came back just to see where were the worms? Had they gone anywhere? Mm -hmm. And when they did this, the first time they found out that all of the worms had collectively moved together into the same arm of the box. Hmm. Now, could that be a coincidence? Absolutely. And mm-hmm. replication is key in science. So the researchers repeated this experiment 30 times. Whoa. And each time they found all of the worms ended up in the same arm of the box with each other. Huh. The worms were somehow forming a herd and moving together, That's which wild. is super huh. cool. Did they and use this is the different first time worms? any scientists, scient- uh, it was one particular species of earthworm. Well, I mean, like uh, different this was specimens the, the, of the same worm. Oh, that's a great question. I, I don't know if it was just the same group of worms over and over or if they were swapping in other worms to expect, like, you know, from the same species. I actually don't mm-hmm. know that information, but it's a really good question. Cool. And it would be another, if they didn't, there's another variable you can test out. But mm-hmm. this was the first time any scientist had ever demonstrated herding behavior in a worm or an annelid. So uh, cool. There's a few hypotheses as to about how the worms were keeping together, such as following trails, like slime trails, literally, mm-hmm. or like emitting pheromones. But in the end, uh, the researchers think they do it completely by touch, which is also pretty unique Wild. in the animal world, that animals are having to rely completely on touch yeah. to stay together in uh-huh. a herd. Um, but, you know, probably makes sense when you're living underground with no light or anything. Mm-hmm. As sure. to why they had this behavior... There could be several reasons. Uh, there is safety in numbers, and you do see animals gathered together uh, with that idea in mind. So like, hey, if we do get found, only one of us will get eaten, and it's better to have mm-hmm. other targets near you if you're going to be discovered. So that's, that's a real thing in nature. But that's not what the researchers think is happening here, though. Uh, the particular, particular worm they were studying secretes an antibacterial fluid into the soil. And by hanging out together that particular patch of soil ends up with a lot of the secretions in it, and thus that soil is safer to, to live in. Hmm. So they're basically putting up like a collective defense and making the area safer to be in. There's actually lots of different species of worms that do secrete fluids like this. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that there could be other worm species that also herd together to take advantage of the collective protection, like we just, we we don't know because we haven't studied mm-hmm. all these other worm species. This was the first group to do this. So as usual in new areas of science, more studies are needed. <laughs> uh, so that's 
That's what I have here this week. Herds of worms. That's wild. You're welcome. Uh, by the way, uh, the journal article describing this was in Ethnology, the International Journal of Behavioral Biology. It was called A New Case of Consensual Decision, Collective Movement in Earthworms. Uh, this is, isn't breaking science news. Uh, the journal article came out back in 2010. Uh, but I, it's something that I still think hasn't really been uh, studied all that much. So, no, that's amazing. Cool. Yeah, that is really Herding cool. worms. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, we're going to take a break. And Rachel, it's your turn to amaze us after the break. See you all soon. <laughs> Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strange by nature. See you soon. I'm taking a note from your book, book Kirk, actually. And Ooh. this week, All right. I'm talking about a bird. Oh, <gasps> oh my God. Treading into Kirk's territory here. I uh, know. No, you already you already stole uh, poisonous birds off my list. So what are you taking today? I did. Uh, so this bird <laughs> has a really rich cultural history and has a really strong meaning to mm. the Nofatl people. So mm. uh, that is a okay. variety of groups of people in Central America, including like the Aztecs. And it's actually the yeah. national mm. bird of Guatemala. And as it's generally only found in like Central America, but especially in Guatemala, but it actually can also be found in some Mexican states and even in some of spaces in the southernmost United States, like in Arizona and New Mexico. This is a yeah. All right, I'm in. Yeah, so this is actually considered sacred by sev several different Mesoamerican cultures to the point where it was actually a crime to kill this bird. Today, I'm talking about a trogon bird, which the male has bright iridescent green wing coverts, back, chest, sometimes yeah. its head, has a bright red belly and like lower belly and lower breast with black interior wings. So today, I'm talking about the Quetzal. Yes, awesome. yeah, that's what I super, thought you were going super for. Cool. Oh yeah. So this is an amazing, uh, just like last week with all with the liquid rainbow. Uh, this is an amazing bird due to its coloring, but also the males on top of this coloring. Like when I said, like bright iridescent green, I mean iridescent green. It looks almost metallic-y green, which oh, is it's not even it's very. It's right. so bright. It's burn your eyeballs iridescent. It's yeah. Which is wild. But the males will also grow two long tail feathers. And these tail feathers reach up to three feet in length. 
Oh my gosh. Love it. And it's just Love two it. feathers. Wow. Now that's part of uh that is just part of how they demonstrate how pretty they are to the females, which do actually look very similar. They're just not as brightly colored as the males, and their tails aren't as long as the males. Mm-hmm. But partially because their tail feather, those two tail feathers get so long, the Quetzal is a terrible flyer. It's the worst flyer. And it also can't really walk very well either. It hops from branch to branch in the Mm. trees. And in addition, its feet... uh, in addition, its feet are actually like osprey feet. It has two talons that face backwards and two fa- talons that face forward, hmm. which help it perch really oh, high like up a in woodpecker. the trees. Like a woodpecker or an osprey. Yeah. But what blows my mind is this is an insanely bright bird. So iridescent, so metallic. And even though they're so brightly colored, they're so hard to find. We actually <laughs> struggle to get population numbers because they're so hard to find and hard to spot. So this actually is excellent camouflage for these birds. Generally speaking, they live in cloud forests, which is a place where in a dense tropical forest where there's a lot of moisture in the air and it ends with like a fog. So it looks like the forest is actually in a cloud, hence cloud forest, which right, is pretty right. cool. Yeah. On top of all of this, they have this long tail. They're cavity nesters. Uh-huh. That's insane. How? That can't be good. <laughs> well, uh, so they have a really tough beak. They'll either create a hole in a tree themselves with their pretty tough beak. Uh, it looks a lot. It reminded me a lot of like a parrot beak. They are generally they generally eat mm-hmm. fruit, especially fruit that is uh, laurel based and similar to like avocados, but not avocados. Uh, they also eat insects, okay. lizards, and frogs if they need to, but they'll use their beak and make a hole in the tree, uh, or they'll steal an old woodpecker cavity and they'll hang out there. But this is just a really funny visual. I did see pictures of this because their tails are so long. Both the male and the female will sit on the eggs. So when they go and they sit in the cavity, the tail feathers will stick out of the hole. Stick out the hole. <laughs> Amazing. While they incubate uh. the eggs for two weeks. Oh, I'm surprised they don't snap off. You. Right? You're saying Quetzal. Like, there's like six different species of Quetzal. Mm. So are you mostly talking about the resplendent Quetzal? That is a good is point. The, I think that's the one with like the longest tail. Yes, I'm mostly talking about the resplendent Quetzal. You're right. Okay. Most of the other ones because those were very those are the ones similar. that aren't going to make it all the way up into Arizona. No. Most resplendent Quetzals do live in Guatemala and Costa Rica. Uh, there, like right. you said, there are six different species, so there are a number of others that can make it up to very southern. Arizona, New Mexico, but there's very localized populations of those. Um, yeah, but in general, I was talking about the resplendent Quetzal. 
Which is a fabulous name, by the way. Right? Yes, it like, totally We're going to talk about a beautiful and mo- the very colorful bird. Uh, why not talk about, why not give it the name Resplendent? Uh, I wish right. we should, we should use that word And up next more. we have <laughs> the Resplendent Victoria. Oh, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. I, I'll go <laughs> right? by that always now. Oh, as you should. <laughs> That's your new title on the show, right? <laughs> Although I feel like it was Rachel's topic, which she probably said the resplendent Rachel. That's got the Ooh, it's alliteration. So yeah. Oh, I'm gonna we, use I'm afraid that we may in have to take like, away your resplendent title now. I'm gonna use that as like my next icebreaker when you have to come up with a alliteration with your name. I'm gonna say resplendent. Yes. Oh yeah. It'll be amazing. Now, if you want to pick some of the other ones for your title, Victoria, there's mm. the, there's eared, which is not real complimentary. Mm. Crested, uh, golden headed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> White, I'm not white, a blonde. Yeah, white tipped. Oh. Or uh, oh, I could go with that. Uh, that was pa- is it pavanine or pavanine? I don't know the last one. So it's mm-hmm. uh, nothing's as good as resplendent. No. That's uh, yeah, magnificent. It went downhill after resplendent. <laughs> yeah, the next one is eared. Uh, it doesn't know. No, no one wants to call it eared. We all have ears, but you know. And I'm glad you do, because you're listening to Strange by Nature podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. Uh, that was what my topic was today. It's a little shorter one, but it's a oh, lot Oh, good, because we took you way off topic there. <laughs> <laughs> nope. That was, that was what I wanted to talk about. I just, yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the resplendent Quetzal. It's a beautiful bird, and it has a lot of really significant... Um, cultural history and significance within Central America, especially. Um, but it's also just beautiful. <laughs> I wanted to talk about it and it's silly feathers sticking out. Oh, of those colors are beautiful. Nest. Thank you. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, it'll be vivacious Victoria. <gasps> there it is. There we go. <laughs> Hey, we're back. So if you remember a few weeks ago, I did an update roundup. Of, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was fun. New, new information about some old topics. Well, a few weeks ago, <gasps> Kirk and I went back and forth about an update we had both discovered. Ooh. And I said <laughs> it was for a topic that I had done. And I was like, well, I think I'm going to do it. But then I didn't have any other updates to add to it. And it wasn't enough for its own episode. But now I do have some more updates. So we're doing another Ooh, update roundup. Yes. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, we both saw this news story and it was, yeah. I was like, I think I, like, I hinted that I was going to do something and you were like, I think that's the same one I saw. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh. We normally don't talk of, at all about what we're going to no. do for the show. But mm-hmm. in this case, Kirk was remembering that probably I had done something about this topic before. So Right. I was like, did you? Yeah, so <laughs> all right. I'll defer to you on this one. I'm so excited. I've already forgotten the update, so go ahead. I'm saving I'm it for so the I'm so excited. <laughs> okay. Back in episodes 63 and 64, I talked about two interrelated things, Saturn's rings and one of its moons, Enceladus. And mm-hmm. I now have, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. I have a pair of updates related to those topics. So that's, you know, it worked out nicely. Ooh. Amazing. And then, as I mentioned, I'll have uh, another update at the end. 
So if you remember, Enceladus is Saturn's sixth largest moon, and it's remarkable for a few reasons. One, it's the brightest object in the solar system in terms of how much light it okay. reflects. Its albedo yep. is like 81%, oh, which so is very cool. high. Mm -hmm. And that is because, two, it is covered in a frozen water ocean, which is liquid under the surface. And cool. three, it has geysers near its south pole that spew water out into space. Um, That's so yeah. cool. And it's the main source of ice. Yeah, main source that, of ice particles for one of Saturn's rings. Uh, sorry, yeah, what? That sounds right. is, that your, is it cryovolcanism? Is that the term? I think so, yeah. So because of its water ocean and the fact that there is liquid water there, uh, Enceladus has been the focus of a lot of interest as a possible location for extraterrestrial life. And today's update <laughs> yeah. makes that more possible that it might be the case. Dun, dun, dun. So as I talked about, find? yes, dun, dun, dun. as I talked about, most of the data we have about Enceladus and Saturn and Saturn's rings comes from the Cassini spacecraft mission, which orbited Saturn between 2004 and 2017. Cassini was awesome. Yes. And um, they're still analyzing data from Cassini. Not everything has been um, analyzed and understood yet. And previously, astronomers had determined that Enceladus's oceans contained a mix of a whole bunch of different compounds, including carbon dioxide, ammonia, methane, some other hydrocarbons. Um, and in fact, of the six elements that exobiologists consider necessary for life, Enceladus was known to have five of them. It has carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, and sulfur. Ah! Well... Recent further Which analysis. Well, I'll get there. Recent further analysis of Cassini <laughs> oh. data has recent has revealed that Enceladus's oceans are also plentiful in the sixth element, which is phosphorus. It is the oh, only ocean awesome. yet discovered so outside cool. of Earth that has. I had, all, I had seen the headline on that. Yeah. I haven't read the story yet. All six elements necessary for life to exist. So to dig in a little deeper, apparently Enceladus's ocean. Ocean or oceans is full of sodium bicarbonate. That is baking soda to you. And that compound allows mm -hmm. the phosphorus yeah, that may so be weird. present in the rocks to become chemically available in the water. So there's a lot of phosphorus, apparently. There's lots of carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and oh, nitrogen. Sure. Okay. The amount of sulfur available is still unclear, although apparently there is some. So, you know, it's... Okay. It's potentially possible that life could exist there. We don't know if it does or not. Um, so exo cool. Yeah, exobiologists think that if it does exist, it would probably be most similar to the types of bacteria that exist near hydrothermal vents in, oh, on yeah. Earth. Mm -hmm. um, which still so another, cool. Another topic I've discussed on the show. Yeah. Another topic we did on the show? Oh, yeah. Um, so my main source for that was from The Atlantic. There was an article about that. Um, and so moving on to the next topic, Saturn's rings, I talked in the previous episode about how there's controversy about how and when the rings formed, mm -hmm. like, are they right. as old as the planet? Are they much younger? Well, there's some more recent evidence to suggest that Saturn's rings are no older than 400 million years, so cool. <laughs> which is, sounds like a long time, but in, in terms of. 
space. Astronomical. It's that's very short. That's like baby. And I, I think. Yeah. There were some like error bars on that too, right? They were saying maybe as young as like a hundred million. Yeah. That I saw. Yeah. Oh man. Which and, is yeah. Wild. Yeah. This Ooh, analysis insane. was based on, um, so the amount of dust and rocks, specifically they call them micrometeoroids that mm-hmm. show up in Saturn's rings. These are considered, um, quote unquote, contamination in the ice that forms the main rings. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. most of the contaminants in the rings come from, hey, Enceladus. Mm-hmm. But um, some of it also comes from outer space. And the stuff coming from Enceladus moves is moving pretty slowly and the stuff coming from outer space is moving pretty quickly. And Cassini, when it was in the rings, collected and recorded space dust as part of its mission, including Mm -hmm. the velocity of the dust. Um, Oh, cool. So they were able to build a model based on the velocities, how much of it came from Enceladus, how much of it came from outer space. Mm -hmm. And this could give them a rate of contamination and that then they mind were blowing. Yeah. <laughs> and then they were able to compare the rate with the actual level of contamination in Saturn's rings. And so that is where they got the range of 100 to 400 million years. That's so cool. For the age of the rings. I think for context for listeners, yes. wow. dinosaurs so it's, were it's on the planet. Just for like yeah. context for oh, listeners. Yeah, no. That would mean like for during the Jurassic period, basically there were no rings around Saturn mm-hmm. possibly. Yeah. And the little dinosaur, um, dinosaur uh, telescopes, they couldn't see any well, they rings. Couldn't see them, yeah. mm. So now, so, to correct, so I know that the, the rings you're saying is mostly just ice from Enceladus yeah. mm-hmm. spewing out and then plus some extra junk that's just kind of right. scooped up as it's moving along. This doesn't tell us anything about the Amazing. other mystery, which is why the rings are there. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. But as I also think I mentioned in the previous episode, the material in the rings is being pulled into the planet mm-hmm. at such a rate that they will probably disappear in another hundred million years. So it's just a blink of an eye, really. See them while you can. Yeah. See them while you can. That's so cool. <laughs> They are a blip in history, just like doorknobs. Yes. Well, to bring things a little more down to earth. Think about that one. I'm thinking about it. (laughs) I have. (laughs) I have an update on death cat mushrooms. Ooh. Yeah, that's what the update was. (laughs) Oh, no. This one's really cool. Yeah. Amanita Felonis. No, it's a good one. Uh, That was episode 41. Ooh, Death caps are insidious and deadly mushrooms, mm-hmm. and they resemble some edible species that are found in Asia. And you don't start to get symptoms typically until a couple days after you eat one, when uh, by which point they basically destroyed your liver. Uh huh. And the death rate is ten to thirty percent, even with modern medical care. So not so great. No, not so much. They. Just to remind you, they have um, a toxin, which is called amatoxin, and it's actually a group of related compounds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I discussed in that episode, evolutionarily, the mushroom doesn't seem to be getting anything out of being so deadly because the poison is delayed. Mm. So it's not like it's it's deterring animals from eating it because by the time you get sick, you don't remember that you ate it. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so it's probably just a you know these are compounds that the death cap uses for its own metabolism and just unluckily happen to be very deadly for us. Sure. So mm-hmm. alpha amanitin, alpha amanitin, which is probably the deadliest of this group of toxins. Um, and it's also found in other Amanita species and some other poisonous mushrooms, including the destroying angel and the deadly skull cap. That's an amazing name. I just wanted to These say those names. Wonderful names. Yep. <laughs> They're great. Mushroom <laughs> people. Okay. They give mycologists give the best names to mushrooms. I'm saying it right now. That's amazing. Oh yeah. It Do you totally want to be known is. as resplendent or destroying? Those are your choices. <laughs> destroying Ooh. angel. Well, we don't know a lot about how alpha amanitin works in the body, but we do know that somehow it messes up cells' ability to make messenger RNA, which is crucial for making proteins, which is basically what all your cells are entirely made of, and therefore your Mm -hmm. body. So um, some researchers at Sun Yat-sen University in China have done some really remarkable work, which may have revealed a possible antidote for alpha-amanitin. This is a multi-part experiment. And it's really like, what they did was pretty incredible. They took human cells culture, human cell culture, so like cells in Petri dishes, but they're human cells. Mm -hmm. And they used uh, CRISPR gene editing technology to disable thousands of individual genes, but a different gene in each group of cells. So like one Petri dish would have cells with gene A disabled. The next Petri dish would have cells with gene B B disabled for thousands of cells. (laughs) Um, They exposed all of the cells to this compound, alpha-amanitin. And if any dish of cells did better than any of the others, like survived better, they then were able to figure out that particular gene must be involved somehow with how alpha-amanitin works in the cell. Interesting. If that gene was disabled and it survived, that gene must be involved in how like alpha-amanitin, when it's 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 working, yeah, yeah, how it's processed. So they did discover such a gene. It's called STT3B. Great name. Great name. Yeah. Um, I think the mycologists win over the... (laughs) geneticists on the <laughs> naming front i mean to be fair there Step are a lot game, of yeah. genes to there's name, a lot so. of genes so yeah. i yeah and you want to have some sort of system yes so that was the first step then they made a computer model to figure out which existing drug compounds might work to disable this particular gene and they came up with 34 possible drugs to try next step mm-hmm. they tested them on human cells regular cells without the uh okay. without the genes knocked out this and is some wild ar- array testing there yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and so they tested these 34 different drugs and on cells that had been exposed to alpha amanitin and all of them mm-hmm. failed except for one which is oh, a yeah. dye called indocyanin green it's a contrast dye that's used to take images of heart and liver function. That's what blew my mind about this story is that it wasn't some like wonder drug thing. They're like, oh, this is this dirt cheap common yeah. <laughs> dye that we just already knew about and used for some unrelated thing. Yeah, that's wild. Totally. Okay, next step of the experiment 
Then they took some mice, they poisoned them with alpha-amanitin and gave them indocyanin green, and those mice that got this drug survived better with less liver damage. Very cool. Yeah, so it's really amazing. Um, No work has been done in people yet, so we don't know if it it helps. Um, They think that... It's yeah, based on, pretty tough to, <laughs> to yeah. test in humans, let's be honest. Well, Here, have this mushroom. They think that um, this gene somehow lets the toxin enter the cells, and without the gene working, it has a harder time getting in. They think that's kind of what's going on okay. with it. Um, and then this drug targets the, the gene function. But we don't, as I said, we don't know if it works in people. Also, unfortunately, it, it works really only if it's given in the first few hours after ingestion. Mm, and a okay. lot of times yeah. people uh, don't know that they've eaten a death cap know. until they've been... Because right. you, you, know, you knew you ate mushrooms, but you thought it was yeah. a different one. Mm-hmm. So you'd have no reason to yeah. go and, you know... Where it might and get be coming in handy is Unless like... you could mix the food ingredient into your dish automatically <laughs> with oh, your God. mushrooms. Green <laughs> mushrooms. <laughs> Um, but if you have like a child who, um, yeah, you know, eats something out of the yard, something or, out yeah. of the yard, it's like, mom, I ate a mushroom. And you're like, oh God, what did you eat? Then that's, that's the kind of situation where potentially it could help if it should turn out to work in people. Yeah. yeah. So that's, uh, those are my three updates. Amazing. Yeah, those are all those are those are three big updates. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. I was excited when I um saw those things about Saturn because then I was like, yes, what I need. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what really we have for you cool. this week. It's been awesome being with you guys and talking to you Absolutely. listeners. All right, we'll see you next time. All right, yeah, we'll see you right next time. Have a good night. Thanks everyone for listening. Night. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.